after I'm done, I'll send you the uh, the audio and the video just in case you want to use it for, for anything else. Perfect. Cool. Sounds good. All right. Let's get started. Um, well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, this is episode number two of Physical Mindset. I'm here with the great and amazing Amy Wheeler. Uh, she's a sports psychologist. I had her for one of my classes back in uh, fall 2019. Loved her class. I loved the way she taught, and she's really insightful on you know things not only that regular people go through, but athletes go through as well. So um, let's all welcome Amy Wheeler. Thank you for coming today. Thank you, Ziggy. When I saw your email, I was just so excited for you to have this new endeavor and, and happy to talk to you again. Mm, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, this is a, this is a dive into it. Um, so tell us a little bit about it yourself. Yeah. You know, when I came out of uh, my undergraduate and graduate school, I was totally into being a sports psychologist. Like that was what I wanted to do with my life. And I had the great fortune of um, having a, a woman named Gloria Balagay from the University of Illinois at Chicago, who was working with all sorts of different Olympic teams and national level teams and uh, athletes preparing for the Olympics. And I was in my mid twenties, early twenties. And she just took me under her wing and everywhere she went, she brought me. She was like this amazing mentor. She didn't get paid to do it. I don't even know to this day why she invested so much in me, but if she was going to Holland, she would somehow negotiate in that. Can, can I bring my assistant, Amy, <laughs> which really meant can, can Amy tag along? <laughs> mm. And I just got all these amazing experiences back in the early 1990s of watching her work and she was brilliant. And then eventually there came a point where she couldn't field all of all of the teams that wanted to work with her. And so she would start placing me in position and saying, okay, Amy, we'll, we'll take this one. And it was just one of those blessings in life that you don't expect that you didn't earn that somehow somebody just looked at a young person. She must've thought I had potential and she just took the time to mentor me and I'm, I'm forever grateful. That's good. Um, so what, what made you, interested so was there like a time in your life that made you interested in being like a psychologist sports psychologist whatever or it was just like as soon as you know you learn about it you're like oh, okay this is what I want to do or was there kind of steps that like led up to that so in my undergrad I started out as a psych major mm -hmm. but then I realized you had to talk to people about their problems all day and and that it was probably going to be pretty heavy like for five six seven hours a day people are going to come in and dump their most difficult problems onto you. And you're going to be responsible for listening to that and holding space for that. And I kind of thought that doesn't sound like very much fun to, to just hear people's with their troubles all day. So I switched over to what's what we called health promotion and exercise physiology. We didn't have kinesiology back then. This was again, way back in the eighties, they didn't even have a kinesiology department yet. So I switched over into what I considered the upside of instead of listening to people's problems all day, what can I do to help them better themselves, get in shape? You know, as we know, physical activity uh, helps us with our mental health. How can we eat better? So I kind of went on to the other side. And then um, when I was uh, in college, I ran track and field. 
and I was a heptathlete. So I did high jump, long jump, shot put, hurdles, 800 meters, 200 meters, and javelin. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Ooh, that was a lot. That's and a lot. Um, there came a point where my performance just wasn't what it used to be. I think maybe I was a junior by this time, a junior in college. And my coach said, Hey, there's a lady over in this department who does sports psychology. Would you want to go see her to help you with your performance? And I was like, sure. I don't know what that is, but that sounds cool. And so I went over there and basically had my first experience with a sports psychologist. So, you know, I was a junior in college at that point. And at that moment and the way she transformed, not just how I was in sports, but also how I was functioning in my life. I was like, I want to do this. This is amazing. So I ended up, you know, a couple of years later going back to get my PhD in the area of psychology and sports psychology. And then that's when my, my mentor, Gloria kind of put me under her wing and, and started introducing me to all the people that mattered in the sports psych world. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that, that was kind of segue to my next question about this sports play like a role and stuff like that as well. And then I know you said you um, played track and then you talked to the sports psychologist and they, you know, uh, uh, helped you like improve your, your performance. And I remember there was one example that you had during class where um, I think it was a meet that you had and your the sports psychologist told you to listen to I think uh like orchestra or like um I can't remember the genre baroque, but it was, baroque it, music cello but, music <laughs> cello music yeah so can you can you talk about a bit about that and then we'll we'll get um kind of deeper into yeah. like the whole um yeah all right so this is some of, some of you listening aren't going to understand what I'm about to say but the sports psychologist handed me one of those old yellow Walkman right? If you, you might not be old enough, some of you, to, to remember those yellow Walkman. And she gave me a cassette tape and she said, listen to this while you're stretching and while you're doing your high knees and your kick butts kind of warming up for your events. And I was like, okay, well, of course I was young. I didn't listen to that tape until like right before I was competing at the meet. And so I, I put the yellow Walkman on, I'm stretching out and I put the tape in and it's cello music. And I'm thinking to myself, did I, what is this? Like, you know, 20, 22 year old preparing to run the hurdles. And, and so I did it. I was just kind of like, okay, well, I guess, you know, maybe there's a mistake and I'll tell her next week, but she told me to listen to this and cello music. You know, the research shows it relaxes your nervous system. I didn't know this at the time later found out it slows down your brain waves. And so I went and competed and got a school record in the hurdles and run the fastest time I ever ran. And I was like, what, how did that just happen? That, that really puzzled me that she put me into a state of relaxation and I ran faster. Like that didn't make any sense to, to, to my young mind. I need to hype myself up. I need some ACDC, right? (laughs) Again, I don't even know if people listening knows what ACDC is, but I was like, yeah, we need some headbanging music. We don't need to relax, but apparently my system is kind of high strung and it didn't need to go higher. It needed to go lower. And, and through that relaxation, I got more fluidity. My legs move faster. I could snap that lead leg down faster and bring that trail leg through faster because my system was more relaxed. So that kind of made me a believer. I was like, this is amazing. And I listened to Baroque cello music every meet thereafter. Wow. That, 
that that's phenomenal to be honest just to because i was thinking the same thing too um where if a track me or a basketball game or whatever i'll need to hype myself up to get to get ready to, to play but um i remember in your class we learned about um i think it was the eyes off or the down of my oats the, yes. I, the eyes off functioning Ooh. learning model or something like that yeah individual zones yeah that's what it was and so um that's kind of a nice segue into this question is so does it depend obviously on the athlete and the sport what type of optimal i guess like level of functioning because i i think there was like low arousal medium arousal and then like high arousal type of thing and so so does does that model kind of you know segue into specifically to the athlete or the sport or is it kind of just like a mixture of the two or first of all the fact that you remembered (laughs) eyes and you you remember that theory is amazing second of all it is a hundred percent dependent on the athlete the sport they're in and the position they play so for example not all football quarterbacks need to be in the same zone you may have one quarterback that needs to be super relaxed because they're a type a perfectionist high-strung person and we need to relax them you may have another quarterback that's a a little bit lethargic has trouble getting their mojo on and and so that quarterback needs to actually pump up a little bit and so the key is finding out for that person in that sport with the position they're playing because sometimes athletes switched to different positions a point guard versus a you know a forward or something what do we need to do in that position of that sport with that athlete based on who they are and I would say 70 30 rule I think 70 percent of the athletes need to relax in most of the sports I do a lot with golfers too and 30% need to pump up a little bit. I mean, that's just a general estimate of everybody I've ever worked with. Yeah, and I find that so interesting because uh, when I learned about that, uh, I ended up playing like basketball, I think a couple of days later or whatever. And I was like, you know what? Let me just listen to, I forgot what to listen to, but it was something like mellow and smooth, something like jazz almost. Uh, Cause usually I'll listen to hip hop or rap before I play, you know, pickup game. And I decided to listen to smooth music and I saw like a difference in the way I played it was like I was able to you know slow my pace down watch where people are going watch what people are cutting who to defend and stuff like that I was a lot more calmer that way so I guess you know like you said some positions you know if you're um like a linebacker whatever you kind of have to pump yourself up because you're having that high energy engagement with you know other players and stuff like that so I found that really interesting to kind of be you know, whether you want high arousal, middle, or kind of towards the low spectrum. So. And, and I think the other thing is, like, I just was talking to a golfer a few minutes ago. He was at moderate level of arousal for the first 13 of the 18 holes, but the last five, he got kind of freaked out because he was doing well and he wasn't sure if he was going to hold that. And so his anxiety went up for the last five holes. So now we need to teach him how to bring it back down to moderate. So it could even change within a game. Like, oh my gosh, I'm on the free throw line, you know, for the game winning shot. What do I need to do right now to adjust myself properly to get back to where I need to be for my best performance? Yeah. And that's going to segue to my next question. I don't know if you saw my, my sweater, but 
want to talk about the Lakers because I know you were um, a, a sports psychologist for the Lakers during that their championship run, I believe, like back in 2000. To, I forgot the time frame. Yeah, it was um, the 2000-2001 season. And it's interesting mm -hmm. because I combine yoga with sports psychology. That's one thing that makes me really unique because yoga has so many breathing techniques and so much uh, meditation techniques that help athletes, right? And so I, I think it's the new way to do sports psych. I think everybody's going to start doing that. But if you remember back to Phil Jackson, like everybody back in the early 2000s thought he was kind of weird. So, <laughs> who is this dude doing meditation, right? But I was a perfect match for that. When I went into Gary Vitti, who is the athletic trainer, and he was doing the hiring and handed him my sports psych slash, you know, resume, uh, my sports psych slash yoga resume, he was all over it. He was like, oh, this is perfect for Phil. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, just teaching them breathing techniques, how to slow their heart rate down, how to slow their mind down, how to focus and, and, you know, getting your body, you know, part of mental health is, gosh, are my shoulders up to my ears? Uh, is my low back super, super tight? Cause I'm so stressed out, you know, so combining that body mind approach, in my opinion, is where real sports psych lies. Like, for a lot of sports psychologists, I think they do what we call the top-down model, where they think if you control the mind, you'll control the body. But what modern neuroscience is starting to show is that's only 20% of the game. 80% is can you control your physiology, which is going to go bottom up to the mind. So just to say that when I was working with the Lakers, that's that's my approach is that bottom up, bottom up where we're using yoga, breathing, and meditation along with cue words and, and all sorts of sports psych stuff to hit it from the bottom up and the top down. Wow, yeah, that's very interesting uh, because I just finished watching uh, The Last Dance with the Chicago Bulls, like the whole documentary mm. um, about the Bulls and Michael Jordan and stuff like that. And one of the segments was Phil Jackson and he was teaching his players yoga. Like there's a clip and they're like the practice facility and um, I forgot what he said specifically, but he said, you know, because he was part Indian, like Navajo, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so he had a lot of deep traditions in that. And he would have his players like practice yoga before every game. So I thought that was really interesting that you said, you know, you do yoga. And then Gary Reedy was like, oh, yeah, all on this. Because it fit with, you know, Phil Jackson was. And, and you know, do. I was living in Chicago when Phil Jackson was coaching the Bulls. And, and literally my house was a stone throw from, from where they practiced. And I remember thinking, I want to work with Phil Jackson one day. He ends up in LA. I end up in LA and I get my chance. Who knew, you know? Wow. That's crazy. So, um, so how was your process then when you're working for the Lakers, like with the athletes? So did you see them like one by one and then you had like a form that they would fill out or how, how was that? Time, they weren't doing one-on-one -on -one stuff. It was mainly group group stuff. Now, I personally, if, if I got the chance today to work with another team like that, it would have to be one-on-one -on -one because you have to understand things have come a long way. The last 20 years, there's been so many developments and almost every team has a sports psychologist and or a yoga teacher and or a mental training coach. Like now everybody's doing it. It's kind of, um, you know, a common occurrence now. 
So today everything would have to be one-on-one and that's how I work with athletes all over the world right now is on zoom one-on-one. I just had one from one to one to two today. So I think things have just changed a lot. The field has come so far and now people, even with COVID-19 pandemic, people are so much more comfortable not being in person. Like I used to travel all over the world and sit in the bleachers for six weeks at a time at a, like a world cup event or something. I will never do that to my body again, ever. You want to work with me? Call me on zoom. Let's do this. (laughs) So, so while you're in that group setting with like the team, um, do you ask them questions or you kind of just like teach them, you know, or have like a PowerPoint up or whatever, if they're, you know, in their training facility where they sit down and they have like a, the screen up or whatever. So do you teach them? Um, at like that this? time we didn't, at that time it was like, um, in a group, like they'd literally be in a circle mm-hmm. and we'd be doing breathing techniques. All right. If you want to relax yourself, you need to make your exhalation longer than your inhalation and then close your eyes. They're all lying down on their backs and you're, you're taking them through breath ratios of inhale three seconds, exhale six seconds. All right. So here's how you relax yourself. If you want to increase your activation, we're going to flip it. We're going to go inhale six seconds, exhale three seconds, right? So we might be teaching them a a very practical tool to, to use, but we'd be doing it in a group. Now today, like I said, that I would, if I'm, if I'm going to work with a team, I have to do it individually. And I actually do a full on assessment, like a an hour long, I'm going to ask you every single thing about your concentration, your motivation, your burnout, your anxiety, your depression, your chronic pain. Like I have a, a huge intake (laughs) now that I want to know everything that's going on so that I can give a proper consultation to people. And so what I, I, I usually work with organizations like universities or, you know, whatever organizations want to hire. And then I tell them, here's my hourly fee and I want to be on retainer. And then the athletes call me, but the athletes don't have to pay for it. Right. So like mm-hmm. this one, I did at one o'clock, I just send a bill to his organization now. Oh, wow. Okay. So easy. like I said, things have changed so much for the better for everybody. I think it's much more professional waivers are signed, uh, liability, like everything is very set in stone now. Mm-hmm. So when you do work with these athletes, I know you said that you talk to them about like their um, like chronic stuff that happened in the past or, you know, regular questions. So what are some of the questions that you would ask like those athletes that you work with? You mean in the intake session? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would ask them, you know, what is your anxiety on a scale of one to 10 the night before? What is it the Mm -hmm. morning of an event? How about 10 minutes before? How about when you're on the free throw line? How about, like, I'd try to get a a snapshot of, does this person have, say, generalized anxiety disorder? And what are the things that trigger the anxiety to go higher? Um, Or maybe it would be the opposite. Some of the things you and and I did in class together, Mm -hmm. do they actually have some low-grade depression? And, and is that why they're not able to activate and they feel kind of lethargic and, and what can we do to kind of boost them out of that, um, dark place or that kind of feeling like they're not excited anymore. Maybe they're burnt out. Um, 
I, I ask them about their sleep. What time do you go to bed? What time do you get up? How much are you awake during the night? I have a ton of athletes who are so overly activated, they can't sleep. So they go, they can't sleep till like one o'clock in the morning. They get poor quality of sleep. And then they want to sleep till like 11 AM, but they can't because they have to get up for class at eight. Right. So some of my interventions might be, how are we going to get you to bed earlier and actually help your body settle down? Cause it's like, it's vibrating. It's like plugged into the wall and you cannot fall asleep. My job as a sports psychologist is help you fall asleep. Um, other questions I ask are about chronic pain. A ton of athletes have chronic pain and, mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, you know, how much is that impacting their performance? Are they distracted by it? Is it messing up their sleep? Is it messing up any other area of their life? And, and trying to help them understand how can we manage, help you manage your chronic pain so that it's not taking away from your performance. So there's just a ton of areas that I'll ask questions about. And then depending on where they're strong or weak is where we'll go in and target and find some interventions. Got it. So do you just take notes or do you have like a whole form? Like you'll ask a question and then you'll take notes or. I have a program um, that I use. It's, it's a program that a lot of health coaches use. It's HIPAA compliant. It's called Zamaya.com. Um, and it's, it's got all my waivers in there, all my questionnaires, all my, you know, it's got everything. I could send it to you if you wanted to see it and take it. Oh um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great just to look laugh. at it. People laugh because they're kind of like, wow, that thing took me 45 minutes to fill out. I'm like, yeah, it's I want to know a lot about you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's important to know, like every little detail about, you know, what the athlete does or what his routine is and kind of just figure out, like you said, little things that will kind of affect the way that you perform um well, I think can i just add one more thing yeah all, go ahead. The, all the way to my female athletes who have you know like menstrual cramps like sometimes mm -hmm. two or three days before they get their menstrual cycle they're just out of it well i got to help them figure out how to manage that because if a championship falls on those days we're in trouble so if i sent i i, I thought of this like what would ziggy think of this intake you'd be like why is she asking about menstrual cramps you know mm -hmm. yeah but i feel like that's an important thing i didn't even think about that you know with females when they have you know their menstrual cycle and stuff like that they you know everything you know you gotta kind of uh normalize you know their behavior and kind of help them focus like okay you're this is what you need to focus on now because yeah that, that was interesting. Or how, do, how do we help you relax your body so your cramps aren't so bad mm-hmm you know, so that you can perform. Exactly. Yeah. That was, that was a good one. Um, let's see. Another question was, uh, so working as a sports psychologist, is there like a certain type of trait that you need to have like a cer certain type of personality that you should have when you work with these athletes? Cause I know, obviously, you know, you say you work one-on-one -on -one, one with athletes now, uh, and you get a whole bunch of, you know, personalities and, where they came from and their upbringing and stuff like that. So is there like a, a trait or a personality that a sports psychologist should have when you're talking to these athletes or is it kind of just. No, there is one thing that I think is crucial and that is that you are an excellent listener because people will tell you every single thing you need to know if you're listening and paying attention. So for example, I was just working with a young man a few hours ago and he was just telling me a story. This happens, that happens. This is when it goes wrong. And this is, you know, the chain of events. And I just took notes. I was just like, 
here's what he said, you know, and then I fed back to him and I said, here's what you just told me. Do you agree with what you just said? He said, yeah, that's exactly it. So I, I listened carefully and then I checked in with him and said, is this what, what you just said to me? And he said, yep. And then I said, well, let's pretend you're the sports psychologist. And I just told you that, what would you tell me? And I made him come up with the answer. So we switched roles. He pretended he was my sports psychologist and I had all these problems. He came up with his own answer. I said, exactly right. I'm happy to have you, you know, pay me for this hour, <laughs> but the answer is inside you. You knew that. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, but I needed somebody else to hear it, to feed it back to me and to help me come up with my own solutions. So then we made some very concrete goals, two goals of what he was going to work on in the next two weeks. And I texted those two goals. And I said, every time you forget what you're working on, go back to this text. There's two sentences. And these are the two things you're going to do. But really, he came up with it. Mm -hmm. I just helped him organize it. Yeah, it kind of helped him unlock some that, you know, was there, but he didn't really notice until, you know, you brought it up. And that's, that's very interesting. Um, so now working with these, uh, I know you say you work with uh, Phil Jackson. I'm pretty sure you work with a lot of other coaches as well with their sports teams and everything. So does the way that the coaches coach, you know, these players, does that kind of affect, you know, the approach that you take with these athletes? Like if you see a coach is being too aggressive to a team or like, you know, too strict and makes them run or, um, you know, just punishes them for the small little detail. Does that take into effect on how you talk to the coach? Like, hey, coach, maybe you should, you know, lessen that a little bit more than, you know, kind of include praises every once in a while to kind of encourage your team. Did, did those conversations, conversations happen between you and the coach kind of like redefine their practice? 100%. So first of all, there's uh, confidentiality. Anything the athletes tell me, I can never tell the coach. And I do honor that. But based on what I learn about the personality of the athlete, I probably know more about that athlete's personality than their own coach sometimes. And so what ends up happening is the coaches do the best they can, but then they, they text me and they're like, yeah, I'm having trouble with so-and-so. And, -so and I, I'm really kind of lost where to go next. And so then I'll get on, on the call with the coach without giving any details, but saying, what if we approached it this way or that way or the other way? So I do a lot of work with coaches, the ones that are willing, because, you know, there are some coaches that just think they know it all and they, they don't care what the personality is. They're just like, it's my way or the highway. But I think the newer coaches are understanding that having a connection with their athletes and treating their athletes with respect and dignity is actually going to get the best results. So um, I love working with coaches who are open to finding doorways into the personality of certain athletes that they're having trouble with. And that's, I would say that's 30 to 40% of my work is working with the coaches to figure out how to get the best performance out of the athlete. And sometimes I'm like, coach, I think this one you need to soften up with. And then other times I'm like, coach, you need to draw the line. This kid is manipulating the heck out of you. And you need to let this kid know who's boss. <laughs> so it goes both ways, right? Yeah. So um, I was going to try to relate that to you know, because I know different athletes like, you know, a stricter coach. So if you have an athlete that's, you know, kind of, I don't know, let's just say RP to Kobe, but Kobe Bryant, like his mentality, 
um, just to like, keep going and, you know, uh, challenge himself like every day, every single day. Same thing with, with Michael Jordan. Um, do you, I guess there is like kind of a fine line of how, you know, coaches redefine their practices for, you know, these certain type of athletes to, to, to get them where they want to because you don't want to be too soft, but obviously you don't want to be too hard at the same time. So I think the key is meeting the athlete with their preferred style, right? There are athletes like Kobe and others that want you to just tell them what to do, how to, you know, how to do it, get it done. But, and I don't want to hear anything like just do it. Right. And then you meet those athletes because that's the way they're motivated. There's other athletes that if you take that kind of dictatorship style, it just crushes them. They're just not happy. Mm-hmm. And so then we have to figure out, okay, what's going to motivate this athlete? Is it going to be words of praise? Is it going to be, you know, letting them start the game or, you know, there's a multitude of ways to motivate people. And I think the problem is that most coaches just think this is how I am and everybody needs to line up underneath my dictatorship, you know, and do, do what I think they should do instead of getting to know each person. And this is what Phil Jackson did he was individualized and said, this person needs, you know, a harder approach. This person needs a softer approach. That was the brilliance of Phil is that he could look at each human being and figure out what does that person need to get the best performance. And I think that's what a really smart coach does. Well, yeah. I'm going back to the documentary for the Bulls, the last dance, because like that's, Literally what you just said is what, what Phil did back then. Cause I know they had a player, Dennis Rodman, whatever. And yep. um, yeah, and he would, they were in a championship game or whatever. And he left, I think like the day before they were supposed to play, like he went to Vegas and stuff like that. And like his teammates got mad, but coach said, this is what coach Phil said this, he, he needs this. That's just him. He just needs a break to get away. Um, and I thought that was, yeah. The correlation between the two is just like, and I think that's, that's the future of sport, of coaching, of education, of high-level performers in any field, whether it's music or, you know, dance or whatever. I mean, I, if you even look at the Super Bowl yesterday, did you watch the halftime show? The halftime show? Yeah. What did you yeah. think of the weekend? Yeah, it, it was cool. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I liked watching it. Yeah. It was different, but that's the thing. It was different. And I'm hearing all these people complain and they didn't like it and they didn't get it. And I, I'm like, let's let this guy be who he is and be the creative genius that he is. And let's work with that. Let's praise him for that amazing show he put on, even if it wasn't exactly like all the other Super Bowls, right? So looking at, he's an introvert. He's, you know, had some struggle with his confidence. He's, you know, he's a, a, I don't want to say, I'm trying to think of a word to describe weekend, but he's not your typical rock star, you know, and let's work with that and see what we need to do to get the best performance out of him in, in anything. And that's where sports psych is going is it's moving from sports psychology to performance psychology, where we can help people be the best version of themselves, no matter what career they choose. And doubling back to, you said it a couple of times now, like praising them for, you know, what they do and stuff like that. And coaches like praising their athletes. Now, does there come a point in time where praise is a little bit too much? Oh, the sun's about to get on my, my eyes right now. But is there is there such thing as like 
too much praise because I had a class, I forgot what class it was, uh, last semester where you can like overpraise an athlete, even if, you know, if you're teaching little kids and you overpraise them or whatever. So is there such thing as saying good job too many times? Yeah, a couple of things about that. Number one, it depends on the athlete. There are some athletes that don't ever want to hear any one praise. Moment. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. So there's some athletes that they don't want any praise and therefore you shouldn't praise them because that's not what motivates them, right? So again, it's individualized. Um, Another thing is, you know, giving vague, empty praise, like good job, way to go is not motivating to most people. We have to get very specific with, I really like how low you kept your hands when you were guarding that guy and how you could flick the ball away from them and get those steals. Like to get super, super specific about what you want them to repeat. If you do that, you're reinforcing the behaviors that you want them to do more of. And I don't think people get as tired of it. I don't think it's like this empty praise. It's more like coaching very specific behaviors that you want to see more of. So I would say never, there's never enough of that because every time you say, and when you blocked his shot, I really like the angle of your arm and how you, you know, because they're getting information about what they did well and what they should keep doing. So I, I think it really depends on what the definition of praise is. Just having general, good job, way to go. No, that doesn't- Isn't enough. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that it's not enough. It's not effective. It's empty. It's hollow. Like after a while, you just feel like, okay, whatever. You know, but if somebody's truly coaching you with strategic information and it's helping you become a better version of whatever you're doing, you're probably going to like that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, let's see. So my next question is, so what would be some ways that an athlete might improve? Uh, like I know we talked about earlier in the interview, uh, finding like those key little things that you know, take the athletes off or brings them back to that same routine that they're trying to get out of, what would be, like, we could take, for example, um, I guess, like, the sleeping routine, like, making sure you have enough sleep uh, in order to perform. So what would be some advice or some steps that you would tell them, like, hey, before you go to bed, like, what do you do? Okay, then we'll do this, this, and that. So what would be some advice? It doesn't have to be sleeping. It could be, like, whatever example that you can come up with well, as well. Let's but... use sleeping because that's a huge deal. Basically, what happens to athletes is they lift weights, they play ball, they, they're moving four to six hours a day, and it actually turns on their sympathetic nervous system to the point where they can't relax. Like I said, they feel like they're plugged into a light socket and they're laying there in bed at one o'clock in the morning wondering why they can't fall asleep. Mm. So we have to figure out a way to dial down the sympathetic nervous system and drop them into parasympathetic nervous system, which is where the yoga and the breathing and the meditation comes in, right? So like a a typical thing that I might do is I might say, um, can you have something warm to to drink before you go to bed? Because that soothes the nervous system. So like a cup of miso soup or, you know, something with a little protein, but yet it's warm liquid get something in your stomach because a lot of athletes are actually hungry when they go to bed too. So I, if they, if they have real food that they can eat right before bed and it's not going to make them overweight, then I would say, yeah, you need to eat some heavy, heavy food before you go to bed. 
um, then I would say, I want you to take a 15 minute warm shower because that's very calming to your nervous system and it dials you down. And it's not to get clean, it's a, a therapeutic intervention to change the functioning, how fast your nervous system is firing because hot water kind of slows things down. Then I might tell them, you know, when you get in bed, here's a, a 15 minute audio recording of my voice taking you through some breathing exercises that have long, slow exhalations that again, are gonna dial you down. If that still didn't work, then we'll go to the next thing. Like I just give them two or three or four interventions and see if we can't get their nervous system to settle down and, and bring on sleep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like sleep is a really big part in it in and of itself too. And, you know, just you trying to find those certain key, you know, triggers or certain key things just to improve that those. Um, I feel like it takes a lot um, especially for you just to even think of what this athlete should work on or what this athlete should do in order, you know, to fall asleep or whatever other example there is. Um, so, yeah, I, I applaud you for having so many ideas. It's just to kind of like, you know, calm them down or whatever. Um, so my next question would be, uh, do you feel like self-talk is necessary then? Um in order for an athlete to improve their ability, like self-talk as in, you know, I can do this, or I guess having like key mantras when you wake up in the morning. Um, do you kind of tell that to your athletes that you work with too, that self-talk is kind of important? Is that like one of your? Well, what I tell them is that self-talk is happening all the time. It's just that sometimes our self-talk is not supporting our best performance. So it's not like I have to teach them how to do self-talk because every single one of us is having an internal dialogue happening nonstop. The question is, what is that conversation in there about? Is it around self-doubt? Is it around beating yourself up? Is it around not having confidence? Is it around anxiety? Like what's going on? And so one of the first things I'll ask an, an athlete are like, tell me some of your your internal dialogue. And the strange thing is they, a lot of times they say, I never thought about that. I don't, I don't know. So the first step might be, okay, I'll see you again next week. And between now and then I want you to observe and get some self-awareness about how you actually talk to yourself. So then they come back the next week and I'm like, okay, what have you been saying to yourself? And they're like, well, I didn't even realize it, but these are the types of things I say to myself. And then we determine if that is going to help their performance mm -hmm. or if what they're saying to themselves is hurting their performance. Some of it we can leave as it is. Some of it we can say, oh, that's a great thing. Say more of that to yourself. And then other times I'm like, oh, that is so not useful. Can we, can we do some thought replacing techniques there? Meaning when you start to say a golfer count strokes, that's one thing golfers do is they start counting strokes. When you realize that you're counting strokes, here's the cue words I want you to say to yourself instead, like stop the stroke counting already. And, you know, maybe the cue word is just this shot. Like, I'm just going to focus on this shot. Right. So it's a long answer to your question, but it's really exploring what's already going on in there and, and enhancing the good things that are happening in there. And then maybe doing some replacement of the not so helpful things. Got it. And then does that kind of segue into to goal setting? Um, I know we talked about it kind of in your class. Um, 
like goal setting and making goals for yourself that you want to accomplish not only you know uh for the day but also you know when things like that pops up like how many strokes oh okay my goal is to you know just focus on this stroke right here um so this goal goal setting or goal outcome like play a huge part into that as well 100 percent. so as i've been talking about this this consult <laughs> i just did a few hours ago mm-hmm. we figured out his self-talk we figured out what was not helpful we figured out the behaviors that were causing him anxiety and i gave him two goals and i texted him those two goals and now i'll check in with him every couple of days and be like what's up are you able to do it are you not able to do it like how's it going for you you know mm-hmm. So the goals come directly out of our work together. And then I track them. I, I have a file on each yeah, athlete. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a file on each athlete. The first thing when he comes back next Monday, I'll be like, how did this go? How did this go? And I'll, I'll take notes. And, and sometimes athletes will come back and be like, oh, I totally forgot to do that this week. And I'll say, okay, I'm tracking this. Like mm-hmm. this isn't going off into the ether. We agreed you're going to do this, you know? So does, does your uh, clientele, like when you work with athletes, does that, it, it, is it golfers, like swimmers and, you know, basketball players or what's well, like your, your range of different types of athletes that you work Oof. with? Lots of athletes. So I've worked with a ton of golfers. That's kind of one of my specialties, a ton of men's and women's track and field, all the different, you know, track and field events. Um, artistic gymnastics, uh, rhythmic gymnastics, hockey, field hockey. We haven't had some crazy sports. Um, trying to think what else, just basketball players, obviously football players, uh, swimmers, water polo, cross country runners. I mean, you know, that the concepts of the psych are the same. We just, I just have to learn the language of that sport and, and what the common pit pitfalls of that sport are that's true yeah that's that's really interesting so when you do talk to the athletes and you know you send the text messages or you you, uh, follow up with them um what what would be some tips for them to concentrate like during the game because i know sometimes you know when they're talking to you it's kind of okay this is what i'm doing and then you relay the information and then um sometimes like during the game they get so caught up in the action that they may forget or they may, you know, remember, oh, dang, I should have just thought about this so I can make my free throw or whatever the case may be. So what would be some tips that you would tell the athlete just to like during the game? Yeah, the one of the biggest problems we have during the game is uh, what I call lack of ability to recover after a mistake, right? So w- we've done all this work to prepare them and to get them in the proper mindset and focused and motivated and get their anxiety under control. That all happens weeks and months before. But once you're in the game, the biggest problem athletes have is recovery from a mistake. So for example, they, they miss their first three-pointer, which they're thinking about and they miss another one. And they're thinking about it and they missed another one. And pretty soon it's like, I just missed five three-pointers. What the heck is going on here, right? Mm -hmm. So I think in the game, the biggest thing is recovery. And what I tell them is allow yourself to feel what you need to feel in that moment. If you just missed a three-pointer and it was really disappointing to you, if there's a five-second interval there that you can like be like, damn, that, that was not good. 
like allow yourself to feel it and then consciously let it go and be present with what is now, oh, I got to be running down the court to make sure this guy doesn't go do a layup on me. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, but I really think allowing the emotion to flow through you, if you can, and that sometimes you can't, but if you can, and then consciously saying, okay, I'm on reset now. This is a new, a new moment, a new shot. I cannot carry that forward with me. I think that's the hardest thing for people to do. And the biggest part of that is they're embarrassed that everybody saw them mess up. And so what I tell people is a lot of times you are playing for you. You're not playing for anybody else in that gym. And I don't care what anybody else thinks because you being focused on what they're thinking about you means you're going to screw up. And then what are they going to think of you? Like, it's just a a bad bad self-fulfilling prophecy. So Mm -hmm. what do we need to do to get you focused on what you think of you, which is I made a mistake and now I'm, I'm, I'm coming back and I'm, you know, I'm not embarrassed. So like with the golfers, one of the techniques and, and they hated it when I first made them do it, but when they shoot a bad shot, I tell them they have to stick their chest up and walk down the fairway with their chest out. Yeah. I think you might've heard me say this in class wow. and it's humiliating because you just shot a terrible shot, but I'm, I'm basically saying I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I don't care if anybody just saw that bad shot chest up. I'm it. I'm going to my next shot. We got this. So some kind of body language to kind of reset your mind to tell your mind, like, yeah, we're not going to stay stuck on that. I'm still the most amazing athlete that ever lived or whatever they want to be thinking in their head. So if they see me tap my chest, that means chest up, like, come on, dude, you're thinking about the past. I want your chest up. I want you what am I doing now? You know? Yeah. I think that's, that's great advice that not only that you can use that, you know, sports uh, example, but also like real life example. Um, like say you mess up or you're nervous doing a presentation or whatever, just kind of stick your chest up, relax, take a deep breath. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start to, to flow and makes things a lot easier. Um, so going, going back to, you know, uh, thinking about what other people might think or, Oh, I missed my shot. Da, da, da. Does that kind of relate to, I remember you taught in class, like external narrow, like focus, um, and then like internal narrow. I can't remember the day. Those, those are, one, those but, are concentration mm. techniques that you're talking about. Um, I wouldn't say that that directly relates to this. This is more what I say falls under the category of emotional regulation and resiliency that, you know, concentration is how am I going to block out the crowd? and shoot this free throw, and it's just me and the ball in the the basket, that's a concentration technique. This is more, my emotions are getting the best of me and I can't control them. And that's gonna impact my performance. So how do I get out of my emotions and back on task? Got it, got it. So now one of the big, I think one of the big questions in like sports psychology or psychology is uh, the, the term choking. Like during, you know, big game moments, whether it be like a, a field goal kick or the last winning drive for the touchdown or, you know, a free throw shot, last second shot. Uh, and then the superstars come up short. And we see it like a lot of times in sports where superstars don't live up to their potential in big moments and they end up, you know, fumbling the game or whatever. So can you can you talk a little bit about like why players might choke or why? You know, they've been doing this all season long. And then now when it comes up to a big moment, it's kind of like, oh, you're just like, 
being that 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 superstar, he didn't make the big play. Because it's not physical, it's psycho emotional, meaning they've done that thing on autopilot a thousand times. Their their physical body is capable of it, but their mental emotional state has changed something in their system, which impacts their physical performance. I mean, you've, you've seen great basketball players shoot air balls or whatever. You're like, they've shot, uh, you know, 500,000 shots in their life. It's not the physical ability, right? It's the fact that when your mind gets anxious, your nervous system functions differently, your muscles tense up and you don't have that same range of motion. So how are you going to fix that? How are you going to get your muscles to not be so tight? How are you going to get your nervous system to relax? And how are you going to get all those negative thoughts out of your head? So I would give somebody a three-pronged approach. What am I going to do to loosen up those muscles again? What breathing techniques am I going to do to help you relax your nervous system before the shot, this free throw? And what's going on with these negative thoughts about yourself? Because oftentimes that's what's leading to choking is that, that combination of I'm thinking negative thoughts. Now I'm getting anxious. And now my, my range of motion and the way my physiology functions and my musculoskeletal system function, it, it isn't what it was three minutes ago. Right. I mean, you're, you're a kinesis major, Ziggy, you know, that the nervous system, those nerves innervate muscle tissue. So if there's something going on in the nervous system, causing somebody to be, you know, firing because they're highly anxious it actually changes how the muscles function. And that's why people get injured. That's why they shoot air balls, right? It's, it's really common that that nervous system that innervates the muscle tissue changes the ability of the muscle tissue to do what it's done a thousand times. Suddenly it's different. Wow. Yeah. Cause I always wondered the same thing. Why, you know, do practices so many times and then now at this big moment, it's just, everything shuts down. But like you said, it goes back to just a cognitive uh, um, kind of problem issue, just being anxious, uh, the three prongs that you said, and just having those muscles just innervated so many times that, you know, they tense up. Uh, I feel like that's a, a great um, explanation why, you know, people uh, and fall people short. people don't know, they don't know that. They don't, they really have not taken the time to understand that their thoughts impact how the nerves are firing which impacts the muscle tissue. Like that's a very foreign thought to a lot of people. Mm. So do you usually tell that to your clients oh, yeah. as well all the time? I'm totally into neuroscience. <laughs> I'm totally into the afferent and the efferent nerves and all the, all the physiology. Like I'll, I'll get out pictures to the athlete and I'll be like, okay, here's your spinal cord. Here's your central nervous system. When you think this thought the, the nerve impulses go here and go here. And suddenly your shoulder does not have the range of motion that it used to, wow. right? Like I want to teach them about their bodies. Now, not all of them are interested in that. Like I had a coach recently say, oh, can, can we get, can we stop talking about the neuroscience? And I'm like, <laughs> we can, but it's pretty convincing because it's science, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. you know? So th that coach wasn't into it because he didn't get it. So I stopped talking about it because he asked me to, but I just feel like, oh my God, we have this wealth of information. Why don't we, we've never in the history of the world been able to understand what's happening before. And now we have scientific research to show us like, 
how cool is that? Who doesn't want to learn that, you know? Yeah, and I, I think it's very interesting as well. Um, and that kind of leads me to my next question, because I know you're just talking about the coach that didn't really accept it or whatever. So what what was like the most difficult kind of, or challenging is, or I don't even know if that's where challenging is. What was the most challenging um, kind of like, I don't know, intervention that you did with like an athlete or a coach that it could be either difficult or, or challenging to kind of get them where they need to be? Mm. Well, I'll tell you, I've had a lot of athletes and a lot of coaches who don't have coping mechanisms to deal with their stress. And the coaches usually end up as alcoholics and the athletes end up as potheads. And that's not to say pot is a terrible thing. I actually think it can be a very healing herb for a lot of people and that it can do great things in the world. I'm not against marijuana, but there are certain situations you don't want to go into stoned. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. just, it's hard to focus, right? So I think those are the most challenging when coaches have kind of turned into a little bit of alcoholics, which is very common or an athlete is so dependent on something like marijuana and they don't, they may not even want to do that all day, like wake and bake, but they don't have any other tools in their tool basket to handle their anxiety or their insomnia. So mm -hmm. what, what has to happen is this scaffolding approach where I teach them a bunch of tools that they can use to go to bed earlier and get a good night's sleep, actually get eight hours of sleep, feel better when they wake up in the morning. And, you know, if, if we can get them moving, they're smoking from 7am to even 2pm, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's progression over time. And then maybe it's still 5pm and maybe, you know, like getting people to use these substances appropriately for relaxation, but not to be dependent on it all day, every day. And you not, know, not overdo it. Yeah. I have coaches, you know, world-class coaches that go out for lunch and have three beers at lunch. That's just that, you know, I, I don't think you're going to be super clear at practice. If you just, you know, I, I, that's just me, but mm -hmm. wouldn't it be better to like have another way? Like, Hey coach, why don't you go work out of the lunch hour, get a damn good workout in and then eat a really healthy lunch and then go to practice. Wouldn't that be cool? And then you can have a beer tonight when you're in your lazy boy, but you don't have to go to practice with alcohol on your breath because <laughs> that's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what really that's, that's the toughest thing is people are, I don't, you know, it's an addiction, but I call it a coping mechanism. And can I teach you some other ways to cope so you don't have to depend on that substance universally? You can choose when you want to use it instead of have to use it. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, coming down to, I think, the last couple of questions. Um, so um, what would be some recommendations then for somebody who's trying to get into not even just sports psychology? It could be like regular psychology. But what would some recommendations or some advice that you would give to, you know, some aspiring psychologists that, you know, want to get to, to where you are, where you work with athletes individual or um, just be a psychologist for, for like a therapist, be a therapist, a psychologist. What was some advice that you would give that, that person? So first of all, I think if you want to be a sports psychologist, you need to basically get a degree in psych. I mean, that, that again, the, in the last 20 years, the, the prerequisites for this and the way that we do this has improved so much that I think you really should become 
at least a master's level psych person now in order to do this work. And then the second thing is, you know, you got to have some connections. If my mentor, Gloria Balagay, didn't take me under her wing and start basically requiring the U.S. Olympic Committee to pay for my plane tickets and my hotels and my food, like if she hadn't done that, I don't think I'd be where I am today. So, I mean, you can be really good at what you do, but if you don't have a mentor who's willing to take you under their belt, that's, it's tough. And so I would, I would say to anyone who, you know, kind of wants to start this, like, can you find a mentor or two? I, I really think that's, that's the way to go, you know? Yeah, I um, think. Oh, go yeah, ahead. I'll go ahead. Oh, I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, when I did it, basically I'd, I'd tag along with her and she'd do all her work in a locker room or on a stadium or whatever. And I could just hang out in the background and watch and listen and, and think through what she was telling them. Mm-hmm. Now, because it's being done on Zoom, that's harder because a lot of athletes don't want some third party sitting on a Zoom call. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. well, again, that the world has changed. So maybe it's that your mentor is willing to talk to you about this case confidentiality. Here was the problem. Here's what the conversation looked like. Here's what I told them to do. So, you know, things might have to shift with mentoring to a new model than the way that I was mentored. Yeah, and I clearly agree with you. I think it's about who you know and your connections um, to kind of get to, to where you want, want to be at. And that's amazing that, you know, she took you under your wing and you went, you know, to the Olympics and you got to see firsthand of how this stuff actually works. Um, yeah, uh, what was my other question? I had another one. Um, uh, it came in and it went. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's great advice for Can anybody. Can I say that, one that thing? To, yeah, go ahead. It's not a question means. you asked, but what just happened made me think about like, oh, that's a really common thing right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you have this, but a lot of athletes do. They have ADHD. Oh, really? Where, where like a thought comes in and it's gone. And like, so a lot of the athletes that I'm working with right now, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the way that we all grew up with technology or you all grew up with technology, but helping people to work with their ADHD and find ways to stay focused during the game, during life, during test taking, that's a huge area of my practice that has really expanded to help athletes, you know, have a very linear train of thought and very focused mind. Because I I really think that the way that a lot of people who are 25 and under grew up, there's so much stimulation. It's like their, their brain's getting ping, 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 ping with dopamine all over the place. And it's harder to have a one-pointed focus. So we can train that in people. Yeah. And that's interesting to bring up. Uh, so how, how do you handle, you know, people with ADHD or people who excessively like, you know, tap their feet when they're taking a test because they, they have to, um, is that something that that's just part of the person and that, that can't change or is there a way to kind of, you know, navigate around that so they don't tap their foot when they're taking a test or whatever the case may be? First thing I like to do is send them to a nutritionist. Nutrition matters. Get off all the processed foods, get off all the caffeine. Like you got to be eating decent food. That's number one. Number two, um, get up and work out first thing in the morning. I tell all my ADHD people, 
if you don't have practice, you should still go lift some weights and lifting weights is a great thing. It tends to kind of ground the ADHD mind. I really love lift, having people lift weights uh, for that. And usually in the morning, because in the morning is when your cortisol is really high and that's when the ADHD can tend to spin a little bit. So we want to get some exercise, burn off that cortisol. And then, you know, I put limits on their, their uh, social media time, their phone, because when you keep pinging the, the brain like that 22 hours a day, like I, I tell them, nobody's going to want to hear this, but by midnight, the phone needs to go off. You don't need to be getting a, a text at two in the morning and looking at your phone. Like that's just bad for you. So set those hours. Is it midnight to 7 a.m.? Like at, at what point are you going to just, you know, not in, and, and their, their first thing is, but what if there's an emergency? And I say, have you really ever had like a, an emergency at two o'clock in the morning? Exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, I, maybe yeah. you have, maybe you can set up a backup system for that, but just kind of helping them structure their, their lives and then give them concentration exercises. You know, usually a lot of people with ADHD, they do much better if they're super physical, meaning if they can move a lot, they don't do well when they sit. Right. So I might have them study for a test while riding an exercise bike. See, something like that. Yeah. To keep them just active or, or, or watch game tape while they're uh, on an exercise bike and, mm. and actually talk to them about, okay, here's the strategy that team is using. Here's your defense that you're going to put in place, but they're riding the bike while the coach is explaining the game plan to them so they can focus. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of different techniques we could use. Mm -hmm. So coming down to last two questions, um, I know going back to when you're explaining, uh, you know, working out in the morning, uh, there was a part in your lecture where you were talking about, uh, you know, you can listen to music and you can work out, but are you really feeling the effects of the workout? And um, I think you were talking about, you know, you can listen to the music and that could be great, but are you actually getting the most out of your lifting? Do we need to like, do we need to focus on, you know, this bicep curl and contracting it to get more out of it. Um, yeah, can you touch a, a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, when, when we start with people who are just beginning an exercise, we like them to have an external focus, like watch TV or listen to music because it distracts from the pain. And if they focused on the pain, they'd stop doing what they're doing. But as a, an athlete becomes more elite, now we want them to use what we call interoceptive awareness. We want them to go in and actually connect to those sensations and feel those sensations and research is starting to show how important this is in terms of not just body control but also the results that we're going to get so when we get into elite athletes we don't want them distracting with music or tv or talking to a friend we actually want them it's almost like an inward meditation while they're lifting or while they're running or whatever they're swimming or whatever they're doing and we want to train them to feel the contraction of their muscles. And, and, and even if it's painful, it's still important that they go internally. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting when you, when you said that to really focus on, you know, yourself feeling the contractions. Cause as I'll see a lot of times um, at the gym, when uh, the school gym was open, that a lot of people uh, would just read while they're, you know, walking on the treadmill or, you know, they'll be doing something else while they're working out. And that brought up a really interesting point of 
is do they really feel their contraction and you know um, and like i said at first they may need to do that because I mean, let's face it, when you're not in shape, it hurts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I when I run on the treadmill, I'm like, anything to distract me, because if I feel this, I'm stopping. But <laughs> not for elite athletes. That's they, a totally different situation. And and I consider you an elite athlete. You're, you're fit. You're in shape. You don't need to distract yourself. You need to go internal now. That makes sense. Makes sense. Um, come towards my last last question. Um, I know you do everything on, on Zoom now with your athletes and stuff but does body language also help you kind of determine uh like your assessment with the athlete as well like when you were doing face-to-face with people um does body language play a part like if they're too relaxed or if they're like always hunched over with their chair and talking to you does that does body language play a role in the way you um evaluate them 100 percent. and and i should say it's not all on zoom like i do go like if I'm working with a college golf team, they'll bring me down for three days and I'll, you know, at the beginning of the season, middle of the season, I'll go and I'll watch everybody play. Right. So there, there is a human component to it still, but a lot of it I can do on zoom, but you know, Ziggy, I've been watching you this whole time. I mean, I watch very specific things. I'm watching how your mind is getting distracted by the ping of your phone. I'm watching the color of your skin. I'm watching when you smile and light up versus when I can see a little furrow of your brow. I mean, I am, I am studying you and on zoom, oh, wow. it's actually quite easy. I don't Makes tell people that. Tense up a little bit. Yeah. No, I'm kind of just like, not that's how I learn about who you are is you mm-hmm. are the object of my meditation. Like I want to know you so deeply over time if you are my athlete right Mm -hmm. I want to understand you and so yeah I'm watching if you're slouching I'm I'm watching when you kind of go like this and twitch a little bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and what makes you happy what confuses you when you get uncomfortable all of it and I I take notes about it (laughs) oh wow Mm -hmm. yeah because I was thinking about that because I mean obviously I think Siri came on my iPad or whatever and then, you know, I was kind of trying to fix it and stuff like that. And then when that happened, that got kind of tense. I was like, oh, she knew, you know, Siri went off and I got kind of distracted a little bit. So now my mind was kind of thinking, okay, she probably was looking at my body language and, you know, uh, how I sit in my chair and stuff like that. But yeah. And, and you know, athletes don't know I'm doing that. So it's kind of, you know, somebody listening to this podcast, if they ever had me as a sports psychologist, they'd know now, but most people are completely unaware how carefully I'm watching them and processing what's making them happy or not happy or when they get awkward or when they change the subject on me. Like there'll be times where I'll ask a very direct question and they'll just take a beeline in the opposite and answer some other question that I had, you know, and then I know, oh, they didn't want to answer that question. Mm. Interesting. And I won't go back and hammer them with that, but I will make note like I might say to, to somebody, uh, so are you and your girlfriend getting along still? Because a lot of times, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend things impact their sports performance. Mm-hmm. If, if he or she won't answer that question and starts talking about their coursework in, you know, microeconomics class, like that's a mental note. Like, oh, okay. We'd rather talk about micro than we would your relationship. All right. That's cool. Mm-hmm. You know, so th- 
communication tells us so much about what's going on with people if we just pay attention. Yeah, I feel like that's very important, especially in the field that you're working in, psychologists, is basically what they do is just study people and their behavior 24-7 all day long. Um, so do you, this would be my last question. So since you do that with athletes, um, do you kind of see yourself doing that just in everyday life? Like if you, you know, go buy something at, you know, a grocery store or whatever, then you kind of like analyze the person. I know it's kind of hard because we have masks on and stuff like that. Uh, but do you kind of be even before that, um, do you see yourself kind of analyzing people just throughout your everyday life? You know, I think I used to do that more because like, it was almost like I was practicing to become good at it. Like my, my need to be a good sports psychologist was bleeding into my life. But what I've realized is that my family and my friends and my husband, they don't appreciate that. They don't want somebody who's like staring at them intently and trying to figure out what's going on. So now I've tried to soften on it and not, not be in psychologist mode all the time. More like, I'm just in a relationship with you. I'm a flawed human being. You got your stuff going on. Let's try to connect and be empathetic together. And I'm not going to treat you like one of my subjects if you're not <laughs> asking me to, to do that or beg me to do that. So yeah, I, I would say I've softened a lot on that and just tried to have a heart to heart connection now. And, you know, not, not be in psychology mode all the time. Yeah. And have an off switch every now and then. Yeah, because there is an element, I don't want to say I'm judgmental, but there's an analysis that's happening when you're in session that isn't helpful to you and your spouse or you and your best friend or you and your dad, you know, like that's just not helpful to be analyzing people all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was uh, my last question for you. Um, well, thank you for having me. It was really fun to kind of revisit some of what we learned together in sports psychology. And I, I just want to say that, you know, you, that quarter that I had you, you were the brightest light in the class. Like I knew that Ziggy was going to be something or is something like you, you have that about you, that there is something really special. And so when I saw your email inviting me, I was like, oh, heck yeah, I want to, I want to be part of this. So I do hope you'll keep me posted on how life unfolds and if there's any way I can support you. Oh yeah. Thank you for the compliment. And yeah, of course, anytime, thank you uh, for being on here. And, you know, like you said, revisiting some of the stuff that we learned. Uh, I think you were uh, you, one of my favorite professors during that, during mm -hmm. that time. And uh, it was amazing. I know we went over like a whole bunch of psychology stuff that I took home um, to myself and kind of applied to my life as well. So uh, I thank you again for being a, a great professor and, you know, obviously being on uh, this podcast. Thanks, Diggy. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. All right. Um, you enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, I'll send you the video and I'll send you the audio separate. So I think you can do um, whatever you want with it. And then is, is it okay if I um, post this on Insta? Of course, of course, yeah. 100%. Yeah, do you want to tag me? Like if you tag me, then can I repost it to mine? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, obviously. Mm -hmm. Okay. um let's uh let's see i'll just type it down you want me to type in my my insta uh yeah i'll go ahead and yeah that'll work so mine is optimal state with amy wheeler that's kind of my business one okay cool let me uh copy that and then uh yeah it'll be a couple weeks until i i i post it 
But um, when I do, I'll definitely uh, let you know. And I'll tag you and everything in it. And then you can do whatever you want. Uh, Sounds good. Yeah, thanks again. Enjoy the rest thanks of your day again. and the rest of your uh, semester. All right. Thanks, Iggy. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.